Good morning. It's a pleasure to be uh, opening God's Word with you this morning. Perhaps you remember the song, Love Changes Everything. A song from the musical Aspects of Love was composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber, Derek shaking his head, released in 1989, I still remember in the late 80s, being blasted by it in the car while being driven around by my parents. I used to call it headache music. When it and other golden oldies like raindrops keep falling on my head were played on cassette in the family wagon. Anyway, the first two phrases of the song go like this. Love, love changes everything, hands and faces, earth and sky. Love, love changes everything, how you live and how you die. Love changes how you live and how you die. That's pretty incredible, right? That's an impressive line. In the final verse of the song, there's a line that goes, Off into the world we go, planning futures, shaping years, love bursts in, and suddenly all our wisdom disappears. And finally, the last two lines of the song repeat the line twice, Love will never, never let you be the same. But in our world, in our country, in our state and in our city here in Canberra, in our families and in our lives, are we defining love the right way? For the most part, our society would describe love as some kind of intense feeling of deep affection. In other words, it's about what you feel rather than what you do. You see, our world and perhaps you even have got love upside down. Love is really an action we choose. Like when a child is born, the father and mother and plenty of doting relatives, but none so much as the parents, immediately feels that they would do anything for that little boy or girl. It happens in an instant and it lasts forever. But we can also love things. For instance, I might say that I love the Brindabella Mountains that provide such an epic backdrop to our city. Or I could say that I love my car or my bike, but this kind of love is not relational. I can't have a relationship with the Brindabella Mountains, my car or my bike. So sometimes our definition of love can get a little confused. Real love is expressed when what we feel flows into action. Love is directional and because it's relational, it's always aimed at someone else. Our love for someone else can spur us into action and sometimes it's the seemingly mundane and everyday things that show our love and dedication to those around us, our spouses, our children, siblings and friends. Here's a short clip from uh, the musical uh, Fiddler on the Roof where Tevier has asked his wife of some 25 years whether she loves him. Her reply, I believe, is right on the money. Love, what is that you love? 
So people that I told that that was going to be played wondered why or how I was going to fit that in. So I hope this makes sense. Uh, so what I wanted to highlight here are not the uh, individual details of these song lyrics or the video clip dialogue, uh, but rather that a healthier understanding of love, would what that would be. And our love expresses itself in action like the song lyric goes, uh, from the start, love, love changes everything. And that is precisely what we see in the passage in Luke 7 today. You're wondering whether I was going to get there, weren't you? The passage is titled in your Bible as Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. But as we go through this passage this morning, let's not forget to take a look at the character of Simon too. So let's read from uh, verse 36, if you've still got your Bibles open. When one of the Pharisees, remember a Pharisee is an expert in the Old Testament and Jewish laws. This is Simon invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. In the first century, Jewish people had become accustomed to dining around a Roman table and a couch combination called a triclinium. Here's a picture. Obviously, this is not a first century picture of what that looks like. There were three couches which were located on the three sides of a square and the fourth side was left open. Um, And this allowed a servant to be able to get in and assist with serving the meal. When you were dining, you'd lay down on the cushions and prop your body up with one elbow. In verse 37 here, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life, I believe that's a euphemism for prostitute, learned, meaning she found out about this in some way, that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Firstly, why did she just turn up? Surely she wasn't invited. An upstanding man in the community like Simon sure wouldn't have invited a prostitute to have dinner with him here, at least while Jesus was around. And here's another piece of first century history. At a dinner party uh, like this, you would usually leave the door open so people could come in, listen in, and take some scraps of food uh, for the poor people. So it really isn't that unusual. But what is unusual is what she does in the next verse, verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. This woman is so overcome by emotion that she's weeping. What has she heard about Jesus on the grapevine? This woman has washed Jesus' feet with her own tears, dried his feet with her hair, and now is pouring possibly her most expensive possession on his feet. I wanted to mention a few things here. Back in the day, women wore their, women wore their hair up. Uh, the absolute worst thing, or one of the worst things they could do is wear their hair down, hair loose. So in public, women wore their hair up and respectable women covered it. But no one except for very young girls would wear their hair down in public. They might let their hair down at home with their husband, but never in public. But you see, there was one exception to this, and that was prostitutes. They wore it down as a form of partial undress. And another exception was women convicted of adultery. This was a sign of complete surrender, complete 
submission to Jesus. If Jesus was who he said he was, then he can have all of me completely. Remember the alabaster jar that contained the perfume. An alabaster jar, they were made from a precious stone found in Israel that resembles the texture of marble. And uh, I've got a picture of that too. They were extremely expensive to own. The shape of the jar usually had a long neck and a sealed top. And to open the jar, the top had to be broken or smashed. They could be worn around the neck and it's thought that when they were, they increased the sexual appeal or at least took care of body odour, I reckon. This woman was giving, every, giving Jesus everything. This jar was the means to her livelihood. She was surrendering all. If Jesus is who he says he is, then he can have everything, even what little I have to get by in this world. And remember, there's no social services here. There's no Centrelink. She was a sinful woman who would have been on her very own. This is incredible faith that she is placing in Jesus. In verse 39, when Simon the Pharisee sees what's going on, he says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. You see, Simon doesn't even give Jesus as much credit as to being a prophet. He is truly a Jewish Pharisee. He's blind to the real Jesus. So why is Jesus at his house then? Well, probably just like the sinful woman, he's heard about Jesus and he wants to find out more about him. There's something about the way Jesus spoke with authority and power that was of interest to Simon. Don't underestimate this step by Simon. As a Pharisee, it was a big deal for him in the first century to invite someone in to your home for a meal was to invite them into relationship with you. But Simon's religious motivations are becoming clearer. Simon is only interested in the message of Jesus and not Jesus himself. But nonetheless, Jesus has something to say to Simon and so we read from verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Again, Simon's still not giving Jesus the credit he deserves. Sure, he's being polite, but he's already cast doubt on Jesus as a prophet, and now the best he can offer is teacher. Jesus then tells this story from verse 41. Verse 41. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. A denarii is singular sense was the usual daily wage of a day labourer. So one of these people effectively owes 50 days labour and the other 500 times more. Well, 500 days, 10 times more. Verse 42. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave. He cancelled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? These debts represent a subjective sense of their own debts against God. The woman is represented by the debt of 500 denarii and Simon is represented by the debt of 50. 
Both have a debt, both cannot pay that debt, and both debts need to be forgiven. When we owe money that we can't pay, what happens? We might declare bankruptcy or financial hardship. They might take goods to the value back via a sheriff's office. We could lose our home, we could lose our vehicles, we could lose lots of different things. But back in these days, if you owed money and you didn't pay, you were thrown into prison. Cancelling the debt costs someone. And so forgiveness always has a cost. The cancelling of a debt means that the person who is owed the debt misses out. They have to absorb that cost. And they suffer because the debt is not repaid. If the debt is not cancelled and we are thrown into prison because of it, then we suffer and pay the price for our debt. And like our sin debt, I'll put those together, before God, we can't pay it. And so God has to get hurt. In verse 43, Simon answers the question of Jesus. Now which of them will love him more? And in verse 43 we read, Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. In the next few verses, we see Simon get absolutely slammed by Jesus. And I think it's helpful to run through the details of this in contrast from verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house, and here it is. Get ready. Verse 44. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I should have said that's the woman side of the uh, chart here. Verse 45. You did not give me a kiss, and referring to the woman, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. And then verse 46. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. I should throw that one up there. You see, what Simon wants here is the message of Jesus, but not Jesus himself. He wants Jesus to tell him how to improve upon his morally upright life, upstanding life as a Pharisee. Simon loves the law, he loves the institution, he loves the organisation but he doesn't love Jesus. Whereas the sinful woman freely recognises that she owed a great debt and she gives Jesus everything. She surrenders all. She makes a fool of herself for Jesus' sake, so overcome by thankfulness for Jesus that she cries enough tears to wash his feet. So free in Christ that she lets down her hair and dries his feet with her hair and so completely unchained from her old way of life that she gives her most precious perfume to scent Jesus' feet. Jesus says to Simon in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. 
a few things to uh, put that one on the screen. A few things uh, to mention here in the Blue Church Bibles. The verse will read as "For she loved much." This could be a little misleading, I think, and make us think that the sinful woman was forgiven because she loved much. But that would be getting the definition of love around the wrong way, just like I spoke about at the start. The 2011 NIV uses the words, as her great love has shown. You see, the love is followed by action. The love flows out of the understanding of how much she has been forgiven. It's not a way of her earning her forgiveness. In the second part of verse 47, it says, but whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Here, forgiven little is linked with loves little. Simon thinks that he can pay his debt by his good life and because he considers he has a smaller debt, the 50 denarii, whereas the sinful woman who knows she can't repay her debt, the 500, and so she is overcome with emotion and that bursts out in affection for Jesus. Simon, believing he has to be forgiven little, loves little. The sinful woman, believing she has to be forgiven much, loves much. In verses 48 to 50, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Verse 49, the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? In verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Both Simon and the sinful woman come to Jesus as seekers but Simon wants to make it on his own he believes he's already so good that he wants the message of Jesus without Jesus himself he wants an impersonal religion Simon doesn't want the touchy-feely stuff the tears the submission he just wants to know how to live a noble life the sinful woman comes to Jesus and says, if you are who you are, who you say you are, you are worthy of all that I am. I surrender all to you. I will give you even my most valued worldly possession in thankfulness for forgiving my debt. I will give you my life since my forgiveness did cost you, Lord Jesus, everything. Your death, Lord Jesus, was agony. The thorns, the nails not to mention the emotional anguish, the insults. Jesus did this for each of us because of his love for us. Do we believe that that was necessary? Perhaps if you don't think it was necessary, then you're like Simon. You haven't wept for your sin. You're not letting your hair down, surrendering all to Jesus. You're not laying your most precious thing at the feet of Jesus. And so because it's impersonal, and impersonal means that it costs nothing. You don't see, you don't know the cost. You see, your sin, my sin, cost the saviour of the world his life in the most agonising of circumstances. His great love for you and for me meant that he would rather pay the cost of yours 
and my debt than live eternally without you in relationship with him. And just like the song I mentioned at the start, love changes everything, how you live and how you die. But the good news is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Death could not hold him down and he rose again. And he invites all of us into relationship with him. A relationship where he wipes your debt clean and you are set free to live for him. And so as we leave here today, I want you to I want to ask you the question, you like Simon? Do you just want the message of Jesus without Jesus? Or are you like this sinful woman who wanted Jesus and his message and so she surrendered all? In a moment we're going to stand and sing our final song, Take My Life. And can I invite the band to come up now? And while they are coming up, let's take a brief look at some of the words. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that your sin has, cost, has a cost, that you can't make it on your own, then make this your prayer. Some of the words go like this. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my love, my Lord, I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. Take my silver and my gold, not a mite would I withhold.